Welcome to episode 28 of Redboard Rewind. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl. Today my special guest is a friend of the In The Money family, Nick Tamaro, and we discuss the races from last Saturday's Super Stake Day at Gulfstream Park. Some angles we cover are a horse me and Nick can't wait to see cut back, has the older turf division found a replacement for bricks and mortar, and how using replays on XBTV can help you toss a bad favorite. This is Redboard Rewind. It's the same old And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest, Nick Tamaro. Nick, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Spencer. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we just had a wonderful weekend at Gulfstream Park. Were there any thoughts on the undercard that you thought were interesting? You know, it was a stakes-loaded card, no doubt about it. And we don't generally see that many graded stakes or stakes of any kind of that matter on one given card. So there were certainly a lot of wagering opportunities. Um, I found a way to, to let the best of them elude me which happens somewhat frequently. And, and I did kind of try to focus a lot of my attention on some of the later races, but no doubt in terms of the Kentucky Oaks trail, a race like the uh, Devona Dale will have some impact. And I thought it was a pretty compelling performance from Tonal Shape, who I'm interested to see in terms of how she develops maybe outside of Florida. We won't get an opportunity to see that until the Oaks itself, but she clearly has come to hand quickly for, for Safi Joseph, who's having a pretty amazing meet. And uh, probably the, my worst opinion of the day was being against Sombaye in the uh, Canadian turf. And obviously the race that he ran was, uh, was very, very strong. Uh, I, I made a, I had a, I had a bad read on both of the Mike Maker trainees in there. I really liked both the Mr. Dumas and Hembry and neither got the job done. Mr. Dumas did it in fact with a very good trip and just came up empty. So it was, uh, there was a lot of frustrating points in the day leading into those last few races where that I was definitely planning on focusing my attention. And, um, and I think that's a little bit about what we're going to talk about later on. We're going to talk about the last three races. Two of those races. I had a pretty big blunder handicapping wise. One was pretty much one of my better choices on the day. Now, Nick, I know you do the buyer speed figures for team buyer, Kind of talk about what you do for the process of doing that. Yeah, so I got connected with Andy Beyer through my, uh, I guess, friend, and and I would be willing to call him a mentor, Andy Serling, um, who I've talked races with now for going on 12 years. Um, and so Andy, uh, Andy, both Andys and I had dinner a few years ago in Saratoga, and uh, and so Andy put me in touch with Andy Serling, put me in touch with Andy Beyer, and we spoke for a while about potentially joining the team. They had an opening. And so I decided that uh, they asked me to do that back in December of 2015. And I started from there and so kind of worked my way up, so to speak, and having some of the, the smaller time tracks to deal with. And I was a little, there was some trepidation going in, no doubt about it. I mean, look, I'd be lying if I didn't say that every time my phone rings and it says Andy Byer in it, you, you don't have like a little, a little flutter of your heart. Exactly. You know, that if you're, if you're a horse player, I mean, it's pretty cool that, that you could be in in any discipline and, and have arguably one of the the best, if not the best ever, to do it. Uh, have contact you for anything. So I, you know, I was scared about how you calculate raw figures and what the differences are in in variance and figuring out how you're going to maintain your figures and monitor your figures when they move from track to track and things like that. So I got started way back in the the winter of 2016 with uh, with Mahoning Valley. 
And so I, I did the Ohio tracks for 16 and 17. That was Mahoning Valley, Belterra, and Thistledown. And uh, Andy added in Finger Lakes in 2016. Golden Gate later that year. I did the California Racing Fairs. I did the racing in Nebraska. So I did a. I people would frequently ask me what tracks are you making buyers for, and I would tell them hopefully none of the ones you're betting. <laughs> so that was That's that was kind crazy. of uh, that was my joke with everyone. But uh, it was fun to to look at the difference in in surfaces and and you know obviously in in a place like Mahoning Valley in the winter you would have wild and and um, mostly inexplicable changes in track speed sometimes on a day to day basis sometimes on a race to race basis. So it was. Uh, there was a lot of trial and error, and I certainly had uh, a lot of help from from Andy and Mark Hopkins both, and uh, in in terms of what to identify, what to look for, what to be on the watch for, and I mean I, I think it undoubtedly made me better over time, and so the uh, track offerings that I've been given are a little bit better than they were, and and I'm still still going strong with uh, with the team. It's interesting having you start at like the not the lower tier it is the lower tier of racing with Mahoning Valley and stuff. Do you feel that people handicapping the lower tier tracks compared to you know your Nyras, your Churchill Downs? Everyone always says like, oh, why would you play those tracks? I know somebody who personally kills it at Turfway every single year. It's amazing. He just he tells me he's like, yeah, I played this ticket, shows it to me. I look at the results the next day. It's like a four thousand dollar pick four. I'm just like. What are you doing differently than everyone else? You know, yeah, I, I think I think if you're willing to put the time and, and energy into it, you can make money um, being a prudent handicapper and better on pretty much any surface. But it, it's it's going any circuit, I should say, um, any surface for that matter as well. But uh, I, you know, I think it's in a place like Mahoning Valley or Thistledown or um, I mean, this time of year, uh, Turfway, as you said, even though their racing product is is improving quite a bit, parks. Uh, Laurel, what you're going to be looking at are a lot of, of they're going to be an abundance of lower level claiming races run on the dirt. And you're going to need to be really astute when it comes to form cycles, horses that are going out of form, maybe the ones that have peaked. And then the, as much as you can pay attention to, to track surface and track profile, and that's going to help you a great deal. You're going to notice when there are biases and you're going to be able to bet horses back that maybe we're on the wrong type of of uh, wrong part of the racetrack and you're going to be able to downgrade some of the ones that were helped by being on the right part of it. So there's a lot that goes into it. And I think if you're willing to put the, the time and effort into it, there's really nothing that should stop you. I mean, I, I quite shamelessly say that, I mean, my handicapping background, my, uh, the way I was taken into the game by my father was we lived South of Dallas when I was, uh, seven years old and we would drive to a place called trinity meadows which does not exist anymore it was in willow park texas about 20 miles west of fort worth and we made that 45 minute drive probably a thousand times uh living up there and there were i mean we handicapped arabians quarter horses thoroughbreds mm-hmm. horses that were running all kinds of distances horses that i mean we saw races where there may have been eight in it and six of them had nothing but negative zero buyers so you, know, you were looking for any clues that you could possibly find. You were trying to, I mean, I was the kind of kid at 10 or 11 years old that had a notebook that I wrote down who the hot trainers were. And I spent a, an inordinate amount of time in school thinking about trifecta strategies. And I guess you could say, look at where it got me now, but I don't know if that would necessarily help my cause. So I, I have no problem with cheap racing. I think that, uh, I think that cheap racing requires maybe a little bit more ingenuity and a little bit more creativity. And, and those are good qualities a handicapper should have. Now, with you doing the buyer uh, buyer charts, obviously, the buyer par chart is something that I've always had an interest in. 
when you're making it now, I know people, a lot of times if you read the books, they don't really tell you exactly how to go along it. Like, do you keep the muddy track races in? Do you go as low as the maiden claimers? If you were going to teach not a novice, but maybe someone in the intermediate level, like how to build a buyer chart, where would you kind of have them start? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you would, you would include everything. Uh, you would break it down. I mean, our system without giving away, of course, too much empirical information, mm-hmm. um, our system breaks it down at, at every single class level run at a given racetrack. So, I mean, if it, if it is a maiden claiming 5,000 at a place like Louisiana Downs, then there's a category for maiden five to maiden 5.9, maiden six to maiden 6.9, you know, so on and so forth. So, and it incorporates all of the, the races run at that class level, um, breaks it down by age, obviously, because you don't want a lot of two and three-year-old races to affect, or I'm sorry, you don't want a lot of three-year-olds racing against older horses to affect uh, the system too terribly much. But, you know, the pars are as good as the people monitoring them and they're as useful as you want to make them. So, you know, there are, and the buyer pars of course are published in the daily racing form. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of times where, you know, you may find in a given race that the buyer par for that race is a number that none of the field has even come close to. And so you want to be very careful about that par. And, and in that situation um, you may want to make a notation of that race whether you're using formulator or whether you use Timeform us or keep notes yourself and and understand that look, moving forward that was a race that was definitely on the weaker end i think i was on i think i was talking about uh the race that playwright won you and eric talked about it last week but the race yep. that playwright won at aqueduct a week ago uh, that was a race where i, I want to say nobody had been within six or seven points of the par in, in in basically any of their last five starts yeah and you know and, th- and that's an extreme situation that was obviously a, a weaker two other than new york bread optional claim or whatever big, the exact level was but uh, because I, I will say that that andy and mark hopkins and then all of us individuals that are doing these racetracks we're monitoring the par charts every month and and sometimes even more frequently than that so that they are as accurate as possible but you know you want like the like the number itself you want to use it for your purposes you want to you want to put into it what you need to and you don't want to simply blindly say well i'm betting the highest buyer from their last start um, or, or, or on the flip side of it, you don't want to discard a given figure, exclude a given figure because you think it, it doesn't fit with what potentially happened. So it, it, they're, they're as useful, of course, as, as you want to make them or sometimes as useless as you want to make them. It was interesting in that race because I remember I picked Playwright and I'm like, no one's even close to the par. This, and I just, by looking at that and then looking at the par, I'm like, this race, no matter who, like, no matter what they even run, I think it's going to be a weaker race in the par. So all that tells me in the future is that I'm just not I'm going to downgrade a lot of these horses coming out of that race, even though I actually ended up having the winner. I mean, that was just not the fastest race I've seen for that level in a, in a long time. Well, and no question about it. You actually identified you, you made you made two good points with that, which is that first of all, that race should be downgraded, both because it was slow um, relative in relative speak and uh, and playwright got a big setup, which is another reason why you would want to downgrade him. But you. It's very important, and it took me a long time as a public handicapper to realize that when you can astutely analyze and thoughtfully analyze the way a race was run or who the horses were in it or um, anything else that, that, that was an element of that race and base your opinion of that race on those types of tenets, you're going to become a better horse player, right? You have to separate yourself from the winners that you had, um, especially when you understand like, hey, you know what? I got the money that day, but... 
I was on them at the right time. And I'm not simply going to bet them back because I was right once before. Take the win and then be that same objective analyst of races in the future because, um, I mean, what we're all trying to do, what we're all trying to get better at is being able to take a step back, look at a race, be as, 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 as I said, thoughtful and analytical as possible and really figure out how it was run and all of the components that went into it rather than just taking that result and saying, see, I was right about playwright. Damn it. I'm going to bet him next time because I, I really know that horse. I just started reading the new Barry Meadow book, The Skeptical Handicapper, and just, I think I'm not even a full two chapters in. Just the way he explains that we're not trying to pick winners, you're trying to analyze each horse, and now you have to decide, is it going to improve, decline, stay like right around the same shot? And you're, you're shopping, pretty much. You're shopping for what you think will be the best price in the race. If, uh, if a horse has Javier Castellano on it, that horse is probably going to lose value. If the horse has some 10-pound apprentice, that horse is going to go up, get an upgrade in value. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, you you have to be, you know, what you. I, I feel like when you're the be, one of the best pieces of advice I could give a, a, a aspiring handicapper, a new handicapper, is look at every horse and start at no, and then try and convince you know see what there is to convince you that would that would make you want to bet on that horse, and and whether it's you really digging into their races and and understanding maybe some of what they were up against, and you know, and understanding what happened in in those races that really makes you better and it will make you it will make you a better race watcher it will make you a better handicapper and it will undoubtedly correlate to your bottom line in the future i think that's some really good advice the last question i have for you just kind of talk about your process when you go like your first time opening the pps like for a race even coming up like in a couple days What's your process from top to bottom? Yeah, I mean, I'm one of those people that's pretty faithful to one circuit. I don't play a whole lot, uh, really, other than Naira. In the winter, I'll play Gulfstream and um, and some Oaklawn. And I, but I really don't try to play unless it's a, it's a circuit or a group of horses that I've at least grown some familiarity with. And um, and I'm in the majority of my handicapping is based on pace, uh, trips. And, and really trying to, like I was saying, understanding what happened in some of those races prior. So uh, that's that's where it would start for me. Obviously, I, I work for Andy Beyer, and so I'm a, I'm a believer in Beyer speed figures. But uh, you'll hardly find a better, bigger advocate than me for Timeform US, which I think is an outstanding product. I think that Craig Mulkowski does an amazing job. And, and I think the advantage in it, and you know, there's no reason for anybody that's a that's a follower or a believer in the buyer speed figures to ignore that that Timeform US offers advantages is that you know by the buyer figure is going to tell you something about the race as a whole, but the Timeform US figure is going to tell you a lot about what happened in the race. And so when you look at, at some of those running lines and you see blue or you see red, and you can then use that and sort of juxtapose that against finishing position and you you get a better sense of what happened along the way. So I mean I want to know I want to think about everything I possibly can about how races ran, what took place, who moved at the right time, who moved at the wrong time, and uh, and use that as a whole kind of package deal. So I, I would say that if there was one thing that class is not something I would spend a whole lot of time talking about because I'm primarily saying that I you know I follow that circuit closely enough that I sort of know you know like that that was a weaker one other than the normal. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that some people are, are users of or the uh, big believers in the time form class ratings as well, which I think are good. And I think that that's a, a good way. I think it's a good good way to quantify and put a number to something that um, is not otherwise identifiable with, with a numeric value. So I think the more that you can can really understand races and horses, I know I'm harping on that, but that's really the most important process, uh, part of the process to me in handicapping. What I do is I use the RF formulator. I actually click on the class level, and I if there's a buyer par, I make sure I see what the horses are running for it. 
if just there, if it says like NA in that top corner, I just take what that horse, the winner got, I write in like, I write in the notes for that race. And then when they come back, I kind of see like what came out of that race and what exactly is coming into the next race. I did that for like a month for Naira. And I found a lot of just different races where I would just be like, this race is weaker than normal. I can toss three or four horses out of that race. And then I would get down to just three horses for the race. And then all it just came down to was price. And if one horse was 10 to one, that was my bet for the race. I think that's a great, yeah, I think that's a great way to do things. I think that's, you know, if it's something that you've put in place and it's worked for you at all, you want to, you want to ride it out. And then I think the most important thing is when, when you're doing that, you're going through that process and you end up because you're inevitably going to get something wrong. You want to understand why, you know, you want to understand why it happened and not give up on the process, but understand of course, that we're only going to be right 20 to 30% of the time. Mm -hmm. And that might be on a good day. But um, maximize it when you are. Don't 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 let some of your potentially bad betting affect your good handicapping. What do you say, Nick? We jump into the first race. It was the twelfth race Saturday from Gulfstream Park. It was one mile on the dirt. It was the Grade Two Gulfstream Park mile. What were your thoughts? You know, this looked like a really tough race on paper uh, to me. It looked like a race that had a lot of speed, and so I was gonna gonna try and be clever at least i thought and uh, one of the horses that i liked was true timber who i felt like had been really at his best at a mile or around one turn he was coming out of the pegasus and um and so i felt like with with uh, mr freeze in there and rare form and zenden you were sort of i it felt to me like you were committed to having a fast pace and and my hope was that he would be taken back to make one run i was not I didn't really consider myself to have a negative opinion on Mr. Freeze. I just felt like all in all, he was not a horse that I needed to be really featuring prominently on some of my tickets at what was going to be kind of a shortish price. Um, I, I was interested in Fat Man, who I felt like really had come into his own with Kent Sweezy and some of his prior starts and looked like a horse with some upside. And uh, and then I also thought that the other Kira McLaughlin trainee, Haikal, had uh, there was at least some level of interest on my part, given that I felt like his comeback may have been a little bit better than it looked, and uh, and he was a horse that that seemed like he would get a decent enough setup. For me, this was a really interesting race. I mean, I it's I loved seeing the horse out of the one hole, Bodhi Express. This horse, for some reason, to me, just takes all the money in the world every time it races, except for in that last race in the Pegasus. But like we were talking about earlier, that allowance race that he ha- that he won in the lead three back, blue fractions throughout. So I downgraded that race. So from a 101, maybe he did just run a 96 back, which he ran the Harlan's Holiday. The horse hasn't really improved since coming back, so this horse to me was an automatic toss. I agree with you on High Cal. Zenden, to me, I thought might have been lone speed, even though it was supposed to be a very fast pace. I thought maybe he would be the speed of the speed, so I had to include him. Uh, True Timber was my second choice. I just liked the way he was coming into the race. The 98s, the 101, just a little bit too tough of a race in the Pegasus in the Pegasus World Cup. That race, we all know with all the defections happening, we don't really know exactly what that race is. Mucho Gusto obviously losing over the weekend in Saudi Arabia. My top pick ended up being expert. I I like the distance, the three for six, the slow improvement from 93, 95, 97. Off the trainer change and off the layoff, I was a little bit not too sure where to go, but I did like the 23% for Dominic Chitino first time with a new runner. I mean, all of that was fair. I felt like it was a pretty wide open race on paper. And I think if you if you had some angles that you wanted to play, you certainly could. Um, Bodhi Express to me is a horse that was a little bit of a tricky read because I know his and I agree with you that the Calder or the Gulfstream Park West race was uh, was a little overrated. I actually thought that his house hope was a little underrated. 
So, mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't sure exactly what to make of him. I felt like the rail was going to be a bit of a problem and that that he's probably a horse that, you know, I, I think that the different different people may approach this a little bit differently from a handicapping perspective. But your horse like Bodie Express to me needs two turns. And I think he needs two turns because he needs the opportunity to create some separation. And he's a naturally fast horse. And a lot of times that type of speed gets negated around one turn because the pack is going to be a little bit more compressed. And in a race like this with other confirmed speed, it just felt to me like he was really going to be up against it. And um, and as it turned out, he he didn't you know is it, well, we're gonna we're gonna hear obviously in a minute, but that was something that worked against him clearly, just not being able to to put some separation between him and any of his rivals. With the fat man, I think the problem for me with him seven for four at the distance again. I just the back to back tops and being a six year old, is he a horse that's coming into his own at six, which not regularly happens. Usually they become you know good at five if they do. I just thought that the bounce was possible. And now looking back at it, that was one of the blunders. And obviously, as we'll hear in a minute, the Mr. Freeze. I don't even know why I just overlooked him. I just thought that if you look at the buyer speed figures, he's 199 and a couple more hundreds. He's the, definitely the most consistent. I think it was just what really came out of that Pegasus World Cup. I went back in. I looked to see a lot of the horses in there. One or two had won a grade one, but it was mostly a lot of just grade two and grade three winners. So when people see like, oh, the horse ran second in a grade one. I kind of put on the brakes there and say, well, it was more like really a glorified grade two, to be honest. Yeah, you know what? I I, I totally understand and, and agree with you. And I think one of the problems that I have with Mr. Freeze is that, you know, this was a horse that we heard all of this chatter about as a three-year-old. He was, he was, you know, he broke his maiden at, at Keeneland and was vaulting up the ranks of the sort of second tier three-year-olds. And, and here was his big opportunity in the Pennsylvania Derby facing, finally facing the heavy heads and, and having an opportunity to show whether he was worth it. And he just got absolutely drilled. You know, mm -hmm. And then he shows up a long while later on the turf and gets drilled again. And he's got a ton of turf pedigree. So he's supposed to be very good on the turf, doesn't do any running whatsoever, disappears again. And then, you know, yeah, he kind of knocked on the door a little bit. But to me, this just felt like a horse that at a relatively short price, I wanted no part of. You know, and, and, and having run well in the Pegasus, you know, I didn't really know how much that mattered to me. I thought the pace was moderate. I thought the field was weak. And to me, it felt like at a, at a mile with a fast pace, likely um, he was a horse I wanted to bet against. And, um, and, you know, those are the kind that you know what chance you're taking going into it. You know the risk that you're running. And sometimes, as I like to say, sometimes you get the dog, sometimes the dog gets you. What did you uh, end up doing from a wagering style? Were you already into a pick four, pick five? You were you going to start some picks? Where were you at? I played exactas with True Timber and um, and and basically the, what I consider to be the main contenders: Fat Man primarily and High Call. And then I used uh, I used Bodie Express and. Um, that wasn't the house hope. I'm sorry. The Bodie Express ran into back. It was the Harlan's holiday. My fault. Um, and, and I used uh, basically smaller exactas with Mr. Freeze. So I tried to keep it uh, relatively. I didn't want to make a big bet. I, I didn't have a whole lot of, of faith in it. I wanted True Timber at an interesting enough price. And then I, in addition to the exactas, I played one trifecta with him in third underneath what I thought were the logical contenders, um, provided he maybe was only able to get that kind of share of it. For me, I couldn't believe the price we were getting on True Timber, 17 to 1. So I just went and played him across the board real quick at a price like that. Just was trying to avoid the favorites. And that was it for me. Let's see if Nick can get his exactas across the board or I can get True Timber to hit the board right now. And they're off. 
the 73rd Gulfstream Park Mile. Beautiful beginning for the Romans pair, Rare Form and Mr. Freeze, and they're headed to the top. Down at the inside, Bodie Express is marching forward, and Bodie Express will go after Rare Form up front. Jockey Manny Franco has Mr. Freeze third on the flank of the top two, two and a half clear of True Timber. Racing between horses is Forever Mo with a call toward the inside, out wide in Hog Creek Hustle. A length and a half to the Fat Man, he's fourth last. Third last is Dushare, Expert is second last, and the trailer is Zenden. 23 and 1 for the opening quarter, less than five furlongs to go. Bodie Express and Jaramillo in front by an neck. Rare form keeps the pressure on second. Mr. Freeze a three wide third. Two and a half to True Timber, who's now fourth. Forevermo at the inside, fifth. Followed sixth by Hog Creek Hustle, then Fat Man seventh. Dropping back to eighth is Hakal. Ninth is Zenden. Tenth is Duchere. And Expert is 11th and last behind a 45 and one opening half mile. These top three have done each other no favors as Mr. Freeze bids up three wide from fourth. Hog Creek Hustle begins to get a move on for Gaffleone. He'll tip to the far outside to try to track down the trio. And the fat man is underway for Castellano. He's five wide. There's a quarter of a mile left to go. Mr. Freeze has ran to the top and leads by two. Hog Creek Hustle and Fat Man are stretch dangers. Long shot Forever Mo tries to get a slice and they toil for home. 109 and four for three quarters with an eighth of a mile to go. Mr. Freeze is strong up front and he leads by three. Fat Man is second. Back to third. Hog Creek Hustle. But they couldn't stay with Mr. Mr. Freeze, Mr. Freeze, Manny Franco and Dale Romans win the Gulfstream Mile by two. Second Fat Man, close for third, maybe Hog Creek Hustle over True Timber. And Mr. Freeze gets it done, paying 740 with a buyer of 107. Little bit of improvement. Nick, what are your thoughts post race? I'll tell you, Spencer. This was a this was a huge effort from Mr. Freeze. I mean, to be to be on a three wide chase on a pace that completely incinerated. Um, 45 and one, you know, going the mile at Gulfstream is extremely fast and to go on with it the way he did and finish the way he did. This is clearly a horse in career form right now. Um, I, I was, I was, I was very impressed. I felt like he really finally delivered on uh, some of that potential that I referenced. He had maybe as a three-year-old and, and in a couple of spots since then. So I was, I was kind of, I mean, I wouldn't say blown away, but I was very surprised at how well he ran. And um, I guess they've got some big aspirations now in terms of where he might surface again, where he might run next. But uh, yeah, it was it was it was a very compelling performance. I heard possibly the mile this morning from the Twitter chat. It was interesting too when I went into the uh, fractions. He was the only one to run a sub twenty-two second fraction. I was like, my lord! When you come back and look at that race, when you can really break the fractions down like that and see that he was three wide on the chase. And those horses both backed up. It's just an, a monster, monster effort. No question about it. I mean, I, I, I would have to look up exactly where they finished. But, I mean, Rare Form and, and Bodie Express, respectively, were both – I mean, they were drilled. And, and Bodie Express is a horse that was 7-2. to two, So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like he was chasing some hopeless long shot that, that he ended up completely subjugating. But, uh, yeah, I would imagine that, that Met Mile would need to be kind of the long-term goal. I, I read yesterday that they were thinking about the Godolphin Mile, and I actually tweeted saying that that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But, you know, I, I would love to have a horse to make a decision like that in the future. Um, I just don't know why you would take a horse that has a couple of nice grade one potential races in the near future, including one on Derby Day, and, and send them over to Dubai. Um, especially for the Godolphin Mile, and he's really not a Dubai World Cup horse. But there's no doubt that he's gotten really good, and and uh, he ran to some of the promising workouts. I think the, the DRF Clocker report sort of hinted at some of the good work that he had done leading into that race, and um, and he delivered, no no doubt about it. It was one of the one of the times where you're wondering what a good horse is going to have to offer, and, and they certainly back it up. 
not to get on too much of a tangent, but I just I'm starting to really wish that horses instead of going overseas would just stick here in the U.S. We talk about so much about how California has five horse fields, yet they can fill horse they can fill it up overseas just because of the big purses. There's got to be a way that we can kind of fluctuate that out and really keep these good horses here in the states. Yeah, I mean, it's. It, it, I agree, and and I can certainly get on a tangent about it. I was actually whining to some of my friends I was with at Gulfstream on Saturday about uh, sharing the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies Turf mm-hmm. winner and how their immediate goal, their their goal for 2020 with her is a race at Ascot, where she's going to be 25 to one, and and I mean, would seemingly have no chance. We've never had a three-year-old filly run well in the coronation, and. Um, and she's a horse that might just be nothing better than sort of a mid-pack type anyway. She was 14 to one when she won the the Breeders' Cup, and and the Coronation has no purse. It's it, you know, and there's and there's like three million dollars in purses for three-year-old fillies on the turf in New York between June and and September. So it's sort of like, what else do we have to do? But yeah, like you said, without getting on too much of a tangent, I mean, look, if they were sending Mister Freeze over for the World Cup, the World Cup is 12 million dollars, mm-hmm. and or 10 million dollars, whatever the price is. So that's a huge opportunity. Obviously, you're a ready-made stallion if you win that race. Um, clearly the Met Mile would, would certainly factor into that as well and would certainly be the same thing. So, hey, if they're thinking about the Godolphin Mile with the goal being the Met Mile, you know, this is a horse that just ran 107 buyer. Unless we find out that the Met Mile is where a horse like Maximum Security is going next, um, then that would he would obviously be – Mr. Freeze would be one of the main contenders. He's from a barn that, that knows how to win the Met Mile anyway. And, um, and clearly this is a horse that, that really uh, – he's on the upswing, no doubt about it. Our horse, True Timber, just missed out hitting the board running fourth. Any horses out of here that you're interested in playing back off of trips or anything like that? Not really. I didn't think that anybody had a, a particularly huge excuse that you would want to, to give them a whole lot of credit for. I thought the pace was maybe somewhat impacted by the fact that Zenden had no speed at all mm-hmm. and, uh, and went nowhere near it. But that being said, I mean, if Zenden had shown speed... I don't know how much faster they could have gone. And maybe that would have helped a horse like Fat Man, who I thought got a really good ride. Um, you know, I don't know if it made really would have made a difference between him losing the photo for third or comfortably winning third. I thought True Timber was a little a little too forwardly placed. I thought he was a little too aggressively ridden. Um, and, and that certainly hurt his chances. The horse that I'd probably be, in terms of, of who he is and what he might be able to do, is, I mean, we've all got to be dying to bet Hog Creek Hustle when he cuts back. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> when, when he cuts back to six or seven, if you if you put this horse into a, a fast-paced six furlong race in, in anywhere in mid-April or so, I mean, I'd be looking to bet him with both fists. So he's just such a, such a hard-trying, honest horse. He put his run in. The mile's way too far for him. And so he, he's got it. There's a race out there. There's a good race out there with Hot Creek Hustle's name on it. And, uh, and I would imagine he'd maybe potentially be in a race like the Commonwealth, um, which is seven eighths. And that would be enough of a cutback, certainly for, for me to get involved because uh, he ran credibly again. And um, other than that, I mean, there were, there was definitely some disappointing efforts. Uh, Bodie Express ran poorly, high call ran very poorly and really never picked up at all. So that was a little surprising to see. I think ultimately it was a, it was a grade three and a half type of bunch behind um, some of the, the ones that we've mentioned. And I don't know if you want to upgrade really a whole lot of horses out of that, other than the ones that maybe have a, a niche that they can get back into, like uh, potentially Hot Creek Hustle. Hot Creek Hustle, the last time he was turned back from the Pate Mile to the Woody Stevens, nice little win at 18-1. to 1. So be on the lookout for this horse turning back. Any other closing statements from you, Nick, or should we jump into the next race? Let's go for it. Gulfstream, race 13, mile and three-eighths. It's the McDermott on the turf. Thoughts into this race? 
I mean, obviously, the conversation with this race started with Zulu Alpha, who has, has quickly become one of the best turf horses in America. And it's going to be interesting to see as the year shakes out where he fits in terms of, of with the heavy heads, because he's a horse who obviously had shown tremendous potential and, and tremendous ability, really, in his career leading up to this point. And now with that big Pegasus World Cup turf win, he looked, was went into to the McDermott looking like a horse that, that really might just be getting to his very best. And this is a horse whose sort of backstory is pretty interesting. And, and without going into to a ton of detail, um, I've been a Zulu Alpha fan for about four years. And, and that goes all the way back to when he was owned by Calumet and was racing for, for Neil Howard. He spent some time with Jose Fernandez. And I bet him in a race where he ended up diving down to the heavy part of the turf course at Churchill in the fall. And so he just became a horse that I followed sort of relentlessly from there. And in 2018, he was 90 to one in the Mervyn Muniz. And he nearly wired the field. He finished third behind a couple of the choices and, um, and ended up juicing up the Superfecta quite a bit. And I had played him underneath that day. So he just became a pet horse of mine. And then when he got claimed for 80000 in uh, September of that year, I noticed that it was by John Ortiz, but it was for Mike Huey, who's a client of Mike Makers. And, um, and then he ended up switching, of course, to Makers Barn after he won the Sycamore. And this was a horse to me that just made all the sense in the world in terms of, of how he was going to improve, uh, given just Makers' incredible ability with distance turf horses. And so, you know, here we stand a little over a, a year and a half later, and, and he's one of the best turf horses in America. So I expected him to win this race. Um, this is this is not not red, well. This is a red board show, right? So I will say that I made one bet in this race. I made a I bet a six seven exacta. I wanted admission office underneath. I felt like admission office had the the worst of it in the Pegasus World Cup turf, and he seemed to me like a horse who would benefit from stretching out to a mile and three eighths. He had run once before at a mile and a half and, and performed credibly on kind of a boggy turf course. So that was my thought on it. I felt like. Uh, like Zulu Alpha would ultimately be able to to sort of run him down, and and I I, I have officially signed my divorce papers with Sadler's Joy and, <laughs> and and Channel Maker, so I was happy to 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 let them go on their way and uh, and try and focus on what I thought was maybe a horse with a little bit of upside in admission office. Ultimately, just in, in my opinion, I felt like he would fall victim to uh, to Zulu Alpha just being a little too classy and a little too good at this point. It's interesting with these types of races, the long on the on the turf. I call this division the five, five to one division. I try to not take a horse unless the horse is going to pay over ten dollars, because like we've said, we hear Jonathan Kinchin talk about it a couple of years ago. They would play Sadler's Joy. They would single this horse, and he'd always come up a neck short, a nose short, and it's just so hard in these races because it's always just a crazy uh, run to the finish. My thought was Thread of Blue. I thought maybe if you looked at the time form pace projector, I believe he was loose on the lead on that. I thought just from looking at it overall, too, he might get loose. And so many times I've seen it at Saratoga in those long races. Last year, I can't remember, but Julian Leperu wired it, or two years ago, wired the two races on a horse that was 26 to 1. And a so, glorious empire. Yeah. And sometimes you just think with these horses, Channel Maker was the other interesting one, but he's 0 for 4 at Gulfstream without even hitting the board. So to me, that's a negative horse for course. I just didn't know where else to go. Thread of Blue was actually ended up being too low on the odds spectrum for me at nine to two. It wasn't that I was, wasn't upset that he would pay over $10. I just wanted something a little bit higher. I thought Zulu alpha, even though he went off at even money, I thought Sadler's joy would take a little bit more. So for me, I ended up just passing the race, wondering if a horse, like we just talked about with Mr. Free Zulu alpha being the most consistent on the 
Spire figures, one, two, three, five, six races with straight hundred buyers. It just seemed like he, like you said, he was going to be the classiest horse for sure coming into this race. Yeah, it, it, it looked that way, and and you know you knew obviously Sadler's Joy has run very well at Gulfstream in the past, mm-hmm. and so you you kind of figured what would probably happen is that he would maybe try and make that last run at a horse like Zulu Alpha. I also am of the opinion that Zulu Alpha is a little bit more effective at a mile and three eighths and a mile and a half. I think a mile and a half is on the, the kind of outer edge of what he prefers. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I was concerned about a threat of blue potentially being, being the speed and, and, and being able kind of to dictate terms and, and look, I mean, throughout Saturday's card, you sort of saw, some horses get out on, especially on that inner portion with the rail at 24 feet of the turf course and, and dictate terms and, and get very brave, including Cheermeister, who won the Here Comes the Bride. And and there was a, uh, although it was on the outer portion of the course, but Paco Lopez wired the uh, the very one, the the very one. So yeah, clearly speed was was dangerous and and that was definitely a concern. I was willing to just take the approach that that even if he had a pace advantage, the mile and three eighths would probably prove a little too much for a threat of blue, at least with that quality of horse running at him late. For me, it was a pass. For Nick, he was playing a seven six exact, or did you box it? Six seven. I played one one punch. One punch six seven. Let's see if Nick's exact can get it done here right now. And they're off in the McDermott. Torby inside. Morocco wins the break, and he's being sent hard to try to get a clear advantage over a threat of blue who comes away in second. From the far outside, Armistice Day is moving closer. He's now third. Spooky Channel had to tap on the brakes. He's back to fifth, and proving inside was Channel Maker. He's now up into fourth. These top flight runners have three lengths on admission office, who's outside of Sadler's Joy. Two and a half clear of Pegasus turf winner Zulu Alpha and the early trailer Nessie. They wheel in front of us for the first time. Loose up top, Morocco ensuring a lively tempo. He's open to four-length lead now. A threat of blue trying to raid his own trip while racing second. Armistice Day on the outside is third. At the inside, Channel Maker follows along in fourth. Two better than Spooky Channel. Then down at the inside goes Sadler's Joy. Outside of him, an admission off his third last. Second last and comfortable at this stage is Zulu Alpha. And still nothing from Nessie, but still a long way to go to the opening half mile in a rock-solid 46-2. and two. Morocco doing the rabbit tactics here. He's on top by five. Racing in second is a threat of blue on the outside. Armistice Day is third. Channel Makers had a good run of it, fourth at the inside. Followed fifth by Spooky Channel. Then Sadler's joined admission office. No alarm bells going off yet from Gaffleone. He's well settled on Zulu Alpha, second last, and five in front of Nessie. They turn into the backstretch after three quarters in 111 and three. There's now five furlongs left to go. Morocco's been in front from the outset. He's gone awfully quick. A threat of blue starts to creep closer second. On the outside, Armistice Day is still third. At the inside and channel maker from fourth and Spooky Channel and Sadler's Joy. Admission office travels well enough. He's about five lengths off the lead. A length and a half in front of Zulu Alpha, who's still confidently handled. And Nessie's been last throughout as they round the far turn. Now the pace quickens, and with the lead, it's Morocco, but only on borrowed time. From the far outside, Zulu Alpha is just going to try to swoop the group here as admission office got first run on him. Top of the lane in the McDermott and Mich- Office kicks on with Zulu Alpha over the top, loose and charging. Eighth of a mile to go at Mission Office, the leader. Zulu Alpha on the outside takes his shot under Gaffleone, and here's Zulu Alpha to the front. At Mission Office's game, and he's trying to cling with him, but the Pegasus turf winner is too good. Zulu Alpha wins the McDermott. Second was at Mission Office. It's close for third, either Channel Maker or Sadler's Joy. And Zulu Alpha gets it done, being the classy horse that he is. Four dollars, buyer of 107. Nice exacting, Nick. 
yeah, it was one of those one of those times where it worked out, and and I was I was actually rooting around the turn for Sadler's Joy to get into some traffic, and was still a little concerned when he got freed up at the top of the stretch that that he might have some run in him. But I think uh, I think Father Time might be catching up to him a little bit, and so some racing luck went my direction. I will say full disclosure, I had not hit a bat at Gulfstream on the entire card prior to this, so it was a long time coming. I definitely needed it. And, uh, and it worked out. And I think admission office probably has a new home going long on the turf. And unfortunately, he just ran into to the boss in this division right now. Is there's no touching Zulu Alpha at uh, the marathon distances on the turf. He's in very, very good form. And, and I'm interested to see him stack up against some of the some of the best in, in not even this division, but really some of the best turf horses around. Because I believe their target is the Old Forester Turf Classic on the Derby undercard. I wanted to ask you this. For me... When I'm done watching a race, I wait for the buyers to obviously come out and formulator. Admission office had gone from a 96 to a 105. The only other big jump was really Channel Maker from a 91 back up to a 98. So many people say, like, oh, I played the horse 11 to 1, and he still lost to that dumb chalk. Your handicapping was great because you really picked the the horse that had the best improvement in the whole race at 11 to 1. I think that's a great job. And so many people Absolutely look at it as no. a negative. Yeah, no, no question about it. I mean, and, and, and I think the figure is entirely legitimate given the separation between admission office and uh, and some of the horses behind him, including Channel Maker and Sadler's Joy. I mean, look, in terms of, of analyzing this race, what you want to talk about is that, you know, I'm not, I don't have any, any knowledge of whether it was done specifically, but it sure looked like Morocco was in the race as a rabbit. <laughs> um, I know he had, he has different, different uh, connections than Zulu Alpha, but in terms of ownership, but um, I mean, this is a horse who had never shown an iota of early speed and he went a 46 and change half mile. So one of the things I would say as it relates to a, a buyer figure conversation is that in order to get a high buyer figure on the turf, you're going to need to have some pace because it's a final time figure. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, while adjustments are made for pace, it, it, nothing obviously is going to have a, a more direct link to the final time than the fractions themselves. So clearly with this being a race that was run at a pretty strong pace, I mean, I think they went to mile and three eighths and two eleven and change. So it was a fast race and it was fast because the pace was fast. So that's going to factor into it. And admission office had been in a lot of of moderately paced mile and a 16th to mile and an eighth type races where, you know, a lot of the horses come together at the finish and, and there's really not much of an opportunity for those races to become very fast. And, and, you know, I think that him having had ability through his whole career, maybe now at five years old is really getting to his absolute best. I think there's an argument to be made that he wanted to go long the whole time. So it, it makes sense. And I would imagine that Brian Lynch will probably target some distance races from here on out. And uh, you might see him back on, Florida Derby Day in the Pan American or potentially at uh, at Keeneland for a race like the Elkhorn. So much for my idea of a throw of blue getting the lone lead, obviously with a horse like Morocco running out there. And I'm sure I haven't seen it yet on Twitter, but I'm sure people will say, you know, this horse was just used as a rabbit. It's unfair to the betters because they're betting on a horse that had, technically has no shot. It's it's racing. There's there was 14 races on that day. People were complaining about the clamor to start the racing day off. I'm like, you still have 13 races left. Like, you guys, do you guys want more horses in the field? Do you guys want less racing? Like, we really have to make up our mind as a group of gamblers on what exactly we really want in the racing business. Well, I mean, we're gamblers, so we're going to complain no matter what. Right? I mean, that's I mean, it's, very true. It's in our, it's in our nature, um, and I do plenty of complaining myself, but I agree with the sentiment. I mean, it's not, you know, look, if you were betting on on Morocco, then. Um, obviously you were doing it based on something that I would never be able to see. Mm-hmm. And my argument would be that going to the lead and setting a 46 half probably gave him more of a chance to win than any of the other ways he possibly could have tried. So I don't really think you were harmed too terribly much by that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's something of course that, that you have to keep in mind, but, um, 
yeah, satisfying the horse playing public is always going to be a task, and uh, that there's no no exception there with with that kind of horse. You know, Thread of Blue probably in terms of moving forward and looking at at these horses moving forward, he probably needs to go shorter, and um, and and it's going to be. Horses with a thread of blue style are always going to be dangerous mm-hmm. because speed on the turf is such a weapon. So, I mean, I would not be willing to say that a thread of blue can't find a race that he can dominate on the front end and um, and potentially get a little bit brave. Uh, there's a lot of grade two and grade three types of races where he might be able to do that. I mean, to me, this is a horse that looks like a great fit for a race like the Dixie on the Pimla, on the Preakness undercard mm-hmm. at a mile and a 16th where maybe he can dictate terms and, and, um, and getting Luis Saez back on him will help. I mean, I'm not a, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time bashing jockeys, but I've just never gotten Joe Bravo. And, and I, I don't, I don't think he did anything wrong on this horse. Don't get me wrong, but, um, Saez is so good with pace on the grass that uh, I think you might want to try and they would it would behoove them to find a, a spot for him where he might be able to dictate terms and and get a little brave and you know races like the Dixie and and a lot of mid range you know grade two ish grade three races going along on the turf are really where I think a thread of blue would fit like a glove. Finding jockeys, not just the ones with the higher percentages, but finding the ones that maybe their speciality of you know being alone on the lead or being that really good closing jockey like Joel Rosario. Maybe their percentages are not 20 there. Maybe they're 25, and it just really adds to really watch that one circuit that you're pr- trying to perform at and really understanding what jockeys are really good at, distance-wise, surface-wise, pace-wise. No question about it. I think that's. I think it's it's something that you really want to consider. I mean, not digging into it too deep, but um, there was a, a stake race at Aqueduct in November that looked like it had a ton of pace on paper, and Joel Rosario was getting on Curlin's honor for Marcassi, and this was a horse that you immediately upgraded because it was an off-the-pace horse mm-hmm. that Rosario was going to be on. And so you knew that that was more than enough to take a chance there, and um, and those are the situations that, that you're alluding to. You know, funny talking about jockeys is look at Zulu Alpha's PPs. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's been ridden by seven different jockeys in the last year or so. Um, and, and has performed well no matter what, which just goes to show you Zulu Alpha is just good. Yes. He's a good horse, and he performs every time. Uh, sometimes he performs well in spite of his rider. Sometimes he performs well because of his rider, but he performs well generally because he's just a good horse, and I think he, he proved that again. And, uh, and so, yeah, like, I, like I've said now a couple times, I'm really excited to see how he stacks up with, with some of the best. And, I mean, heck, at this point, I'm not sure he wouldn't be the favorite in the uh, – in a race like the Old Forester Turf Classic, because you know, looking at what came out of of the Breeders' Cup last year, I mean, the mile was won by was the first and second place finishers were fillies, and they're unlikely to be in a race like that. And obviously, there's no more bricks and mortar, and the other races for this kind of division have been won by you know horses that are no better than Zulu Alpha. So I'm very interested to see that. Limited time remaining. Let's jump into the 14th and final race we're going to talk about today. It was the Fountain of Youth Grade Two going a mile and one sixteenth. Let's get the monkey off my back. Let's talk about what happened. Obviously, after the draw, all of a sudden we go from a field of 8 to 12. These random other horses joining and chance it, and all these other horses are struck on the outside. What were your thoughts after the draw? Is it fair or is it un- is it fair or unfair with this type of stuff happening? You know, it's it's. I guess the surprising thing about it was that you know Mike Welsh is, has his finger on the pulse of what goes on at Gulfstream. Yes. He reports very very well on what goes on at Gulfstream, and this is a guy that is as late as between he and Marty McGee, who are two of the best journalists the DRF has, 
these these guys were saying as late as Wednesday morning that that was going to be a field of eight. And then all of a sudden, 12 enter the box and you have horses like like Master Day and the Falcon and um, and Makabim. And, you know, and, and granted, Candy Tycoon and Country Grammar ended up in there because they were supposed to go to a one other then that wasn't going to fill. And so, you know, boom, there came two additional entrants. But I mean, you couldn't kind of help but feel badly for the connections of Chancet, knowing that, you know, he was was pointing to a race with, with a field of eight. All of a sudden it got to 12. They all drew really well and he drew really poorly. So it was unfortunate. And then and so I, I mean, I was I was was sort of made a joke about it on social media that um, it's, it's kind of ironic that, you know, here the horse that was arguably the biggest draw in the race outside of Dennis's moment mm-hmm. um, dropped for different usage of the word, of course, was was totally outposted, you know, was in a position where it was going to be very difficult for him to win. And and I know that Safi Joseph was pretty outspoken afterwards about the draw and, and how he wasn't expecting the field to be that big and and immediately mentioned that he was going to have to consider scratching the horse and running in the Tampa Bay Derby. And, uh, and, and I was shocked that he did it. I thought that that was just kind of posturing and I imagine it did not make him very popular in the racing office. Um, but you know, when you're a guy that's got a, a big successful barn, you don't need to have things dictated to you. So I think that's probably what, what ultimately did it for him. And, and the racing office needs Safi Joseph a little bit more than he needs them. And so we'll see what chance it has to to offer on Saturday. The thing for me, I talked with a couple guys from Real Dynasty Picks, a couple guys who worked at the DRF. Horses that don't have a maiden win should not be allowed in a grade integrated stake race. If, even if it's a grade three, grade two, grade one, whatever. A horse like the Falcon, and listen, I love Luch. I am such a fan of Luch, it's not even funny. The horse just got nipped at the wire on the synthetic at Turfway at Turfway. This horse has no shot in this race. And that's not coming from, and if the horse had won, I would eat my words. I just, when you look at the PPs and see certain horses like this, now obviously that would have just taken out Falcon and Gear Jockey, but that's still now chance it's in the 10 hole and it's nowhere near as bad as being out in the 12. Right. I agree. I mean, there's, there's, you know, you kind of would like to think there's some qualification process. And I know that, and look, Gulfstream has done this routinely. Look back at some of the, the Florida Derby fields. And I mean, the Florida Derby field behind always dreaming in 2017 had three or four horses that, mm-hmm. that would have been long shots in, in maiden races. You know, there were, there were horses that had no business being in there. And part of it was the marketability of having a big field in a big race. So, I mean, yeah, we sort of, some of the, some of the races run at, at a place like San Anito or Belmont where we kind of, of poo poo the size of the field. I mean, they could have 10 horse fields too. If you put four horses in there, they have no chance. So, you know, when you're, to me, when you're putting together, this ended up being a 10 horse field, the two of these horses ran, went off over 90 to one. So that's not a competitive race. And, and so I, I make morning, the morning line for Sam Houston. And I can tell you that on a given night, I can find you races with fields of seven that are significantly more competitive than races with fields of 10 or 12. So, I mean, look, the racing office was trying to do, do their job in terms of putting forth a big field and, and, and hoping that that would stimulate a little bit more wagering activity. But what it did was it put one of the main players at a serious disadvantage and it prompted his connections to scratch him. And so it, it ended up doing that had a deleterious effect on this race and 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 they ended up losing a local horse that uh, would have otherwise run and you know what the long-term impact of it he's probably not going to run the florida derby either because now he's going to be on a different schedule and they're going to be looking at a race probably four weeks out from the tampa derby and so now you not only lost a three to one shot in the fountain of youth but potentially depending on how he runs next week you could have lost one of the favorites in the florida derby too 
And uh, I mean, I think that that looking at that, you would say that it was a mistake. He was going to be the second choice in this race. Give me your thoughts on who the morning line favorite was. Dennis's moment coming back after that really, really bad race in the juvenile. Yeah, I thought I was going to bet chance it. I mean, I, I thought the chance it ran really well in the mucho macho man. Um, I thought he was geared a little bit more towards the two turns than as seen on TV, uh, given that he'd already wanted a mile in the 16th. Um, so I, I, I post and all, I mean, given the workout reports and the word going around, I expected him to win. So um, I thought Dennis's moment was one of the biggest bet against you were going to find. Mm-hmm. And, and I say that because uh, some of the workouts coming in just looked awful. There was an express bet TV workout two back with, uh, with admire where he, he was struggling to keep up with admire and admire came back and got drilled in an allowance race a week ago. So, you know, you could not have felt good about how he was coming into the race. And I'll tell you one thing about the juvenile. And I mean, obviously we watch races and I'm sure most of the people listening watch races all the time and horses stumble badly all the time. It does. It does. It often completely, uh, I mean, just destroy any ability they have to win. Yeah. But they usually put forth some type of effort. You know, there's usually some kind of move or some level of interest. This horse did no running whatsoever. And, you know, there was a period of time down the backstretch where you thought, oh, maybe he's going to pick himself up and make a little bit of a run. I mean, and he just he basically just strolled around the track. So it, that was a bad sign. And and to, I almost hoped that maybe they would look for like the Kentucky Jockey Club or, or a race in November or December where they might just you know, sort of give him a little bit of a confidence booster. And then to me, off of that total and complete non-effort, he had over two months off and they were bringing him back all the way in late February. There were a lot of warning signs. I think this is a horse that that had something going on. And so I wanted to bet against him altogether. With chance of being scratched, I still felt like there would be some pace I thought that I seen on TV would show speed. I thought Candy Tycoon would show speed. But then, of course, what you were asking yourself was how much speed is there going to be inside of Ete Indian, who is clearly a fast horse to begin with. And it was being ridden by one of the most aggressive riders in the country right now, Florent Giroux, who's doing a phenomenal job taking advantage of what a lot of his, his fellow jockeys are giving him, which is a, a red carpet path to the lead in most uh, dirt routes. And we saw him take advantage of that the weekend of the risen star, which also included good rides in the Southwest and the Razorback. So that was what, what I was trying to figure out. And and so what that led me to ultimately wagering wise was I, I, I boxed uh, Ete Indian and uh, country grammar in the exacta. And I also played him over, um, over as seen on TV, who I thought ran a credible race in the mucho macho man. And, um, and I actually made a couple of, of, and uh, you know, it sounds a little ironic given that the horse was a big price, but I made a couple of super effective bets with Master Day in the fourth slot, hoping that in the gapped out field, he might be able to lay back and make one run and um, and pick up the pieces. And I didn't use Dennis's moment at all. I didn't, I, I thought that he was a horse that you wanted to, to bet against completely. And, uh, and so that was my approach. The two horses I threw out right off the rip were Dennis's moment and Shotsky. I just thought after the race, Shotsky had run back in the Remsen, then came back and didn't run all that well in the Withers. I just thought that Ete Indian, I loved I loved the race in the optional race. I loved him in the Holy Bill, Holy Bull. Tis the Law, I think, is right now for sure the number one horse on a lot of people's derby list. And I just said, when you get a horse like this at that price, why would you not play the horse that... I know he lost by, by three. He's facing what is the number one horse probably in everyone's derby rankings, and you're getting that type of price on him. 
The post was bad, but like you had said, Floron was probably going to try and get him out in the lead. The only other horse I really even wanted was as seen on TV with what can be even possibly even a more aggressive rider in Paco Lopez. The Mucho Macho Man race came back really, really strong. Paco had won on him two back, so he had definitely gotten that rapport with the horse. And I really thought this was just a straight two horse race. Yeah, I think that was a that's it was certainly a fair assessment given what was left after. And if you had negative opinions on some of the other horses, I agree with you on Shotsky. I liked Shotsky when he won the Remsen, and um, I thought that he uh, I thought he came back and ran okay in the Withers. Um, I didn't really love the way this race was going to set up for him. And and look, I mean, it's it's this horse is a great example of what we talk about a lot and what you want to think about when you're betting on dirt races, which is that the easiest way to win a dirt race is to be on the lead. And, and to be alone on the lead like he was in the Remsen. And, and now that he, having faced a little bit of pace pressure last time in the Withers, and I do think the Withers' pace was faster than certainly a lot of people would look. You know, people are seeing these fractional times at Aqueduct and saying, oh my gosh, well, 114. Oh, they were crawling around there. This, the Aqueduct main track in the winter is extremely slow. You know, it's, it's slowed down in, in large part to accommodate the winter weather. And so they actually went pretty quickly I thought in the withers and, um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I felt like ultimately Shotsky was kind of a fringe player because I didn't really expect him to, to win with a three wide chasing trip. And, um, and, and, and I mean, I think that his time to shine in to a great extent was in the Remsen. So uh, yeah, I was, I was sort of, I, he wasn't a total toss for me like he was for you, but he was definitely going to be no better than a, ma- a minor player. Let's see if I can get my win bet on Ete Indian across the board, or if Nick can hit on his exactas and superfectas right now. And they're off in the phasing Tipton Fountain of Youth. Dennis's moment broke pretty well today, but on the far outside, there goes Ette Indian from the 11 post to the rail. He was quick out of there and crossed over from the high draw. Moving to take second is Gear Jockey, as seen on TV, is an early third, with Liam's Lucky Charm away in fourth. Down inside, it's Master Day. Then it's the favorite, Dennis's moment. He's in the blue colors, about five lengths off the lead. Moving on his outside, that's Shotsky. He was four wide on that first turn run. Saving ground is Candy Tycoon, third last and the two at the back are the Falcon and Country Grammar. They complete the opening quarter and head into the backstretch. Ette Indian and Florent Giroux on top by a length. Second to gear jockey as seen on TV is together with Liam's Lucky Charm. They're third and fourth. Up on the outside, Shotsky is now fifth. In between horses, Dennis's moment is sixth. Master Day seventh toward the inside. Candy Tycoon is eighth. It's a gap of four. Ninth is Country Grammar and tenth and last is the Falcon. They make their way to the half-mile grounds. They do go to the first finish line here with Ette Indian in front from the outset, leads a half a length. Liam's Lucky Char moves three wide. Gear jockeys in the two-path. As seen on TV, gets the hurry up to keep up with these top horses. A length and a half better than Shotsky. Down at the inside in Master Day. Then on the outside to Candy Tycoon. Dennis's moment is not picking up his feet at all. Dennis's moment is backpedaling. He's now back second last. The Falcon is last with less than a quarter of a mile to go. Ette Indian with Enterprise tactics from the outset and he's still well clear. Ette Indian and Florent Drew into the short stretch on top. Long shot Master Day cuts the corner to try to get a slice. Shotsky down the center with as seen on TV. Inside the final 16th of the phasing Tipton Fountain of Youth and it's all about Biancone. It's all about Ette Indian who wins stylishly by six or seven. There's four across the course for second. Candy Kaikoon probably got second. Got close after that in the 14th. And Ete Indian gets it done paying what I thought was a great 860, 97 buyer, so a little bit of improvement. Thoughts on the winner, Nick? I'll tell you what. I mean, we talked about it uh, in, in kind of previewing the race and, and 
I mean, all the credit in the world to Florent Giroux. I mean, this guy is doing what a lot of us have been advocating for a long time, which is taking advantage of horses' natural speed. And, I mean, this horse made breaking from the 10 post at a tricky distance look like it was nothing. He hustled him right out of the gate. And, you know, once they reached the midpoint of the backstretch, you could kind of see everybody else scrubbing and, and him going easily. It felt like a race that that he was going to win comfortably. Um, just analyzing Etienne Indian as a whole, I, I wonder – and, and dusk had more or less set in when this race was run and they, they put a light on the, the alternate finish line and it felt like he might have been shying away from that a little bit. Uh, but there definitely was a little you don't like seeing a horse duck out the way he did a little bit late. But um, all in all, I mean, it was it was a tour de force. It was a, a very, very strong effort from top to bottom. And, you know, one of the horses that it really flatters, no question about it, is one that you were, that we're talking about. Tis the law. Tis the law ran by at the Indian like he was standing still last time. And um, and so sitting in, in, in the barn at Palm Meadows, I think his stock rose a little bit. And he's a legit number one, I think, on everybody's derby whatever list that you would have at this point because a horse that he handled quite easily came back and, and took care of business. Um, I mean, you have to talk a little bit about Dennis's moment. We alluded to it, and then it was proven on the track. Something's wrong with Dennis's moment. This is clearly not the same horse we saw winning the Iroquois at, at Churchill. Um, Dale Roman said afterwards that he grabbed a quarter, but um, given the way he was training and the way he performed, I mean, he was, they, they were halfway down the backstretch and, and a 90 to one shot inside of him, I'm sorry, 114 to one shot inside of him was going better than he was. So it's a, uh, it's obviously clear to me that Dennis's moment has seen better days. Um, it, what you want to do with that Indian moving forward is is really take a hard look at where he ends up in his final prep. I would imagine it would be the Florida Derby. He would stand to face Independence Hall and uh, potentially tis the law in that spot in what's looking like it would be a very salty prep. The also-rans, a candy tycoon got enough points in, to, to be in the Kentucky Derby more than likely in finishing second. He won kind of a blanket photo uh, amongst all of the, the vanquished horses behind him. That photo included as seen on TV and Shotsky, who did continue to run on. Um, Country Grammar also ended up finishing kind of an unlucky fifth, beaten virtually nothing for second. So we'll see where those horses surface, how they shake out. Um, I don't really think any of them are Kentucky Derby winning types and would probably do nothing more than help fill the gate. So uh, there's one horse in this race, I think, that you want in terms of Derby prospects, and, and that's the winner. Usually when you see that blanket finish, obviously it wasn't for the win, but for second. Does that worry you at all that this might be a weak race? It worries me about what was behind the winner. Yeah, I, I think if, if the winner had won by by a length and then there was that crush of horses behind him then I would be a little bit more concerned but I mean he 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 beat the, he beat the piss out of these horses I mean for lack of a better way to put it he he really let them have it um what would concern me about Etienne Indian is is the the drifting out late um even with with a pretty strong right-handed whip and so I would I'm wondering if that had something to do with the light that was shining across the track I mean and I I I know that that seems might seem to some like a bit of a flimsy excuse. It was really bright. I mean, it was a really bright light. You see it on the head on. And so that might have been something where he was a little bit goofy. You know, this is a horse that now has run on the dirt three times. And um, and, and, and despite having basically no dirt pedigree whatsoever, he's, he's run really, really well. And so it, it makes you sort of wonder in a way why. I mean, Patrick Biancone debuted him at five eighths on the grass in September. And this is a horse now that that is looking like he might be, you know, twelve to one or so in the Kentucky Derby. Um, so it, it's one thing that you want to 
it, what it's what it's doing and it's sort of I'm laughing, but it's kind of it, it's frustrating to me at the same time is that, you know, one of the things that I've believed for a long time is that when a trainer debuts a horse on the turf, it's because they think they're slow. But obviously, that's not the case with this horse. And we see it you know, periodically. We don't see it all that frequently. But you know, this is a time where if you believed that you've been proven very wrong because uh, this is a, a really quality animal and one that that clearly just needed to, to get to the right surface and the right surface, I guess, for him is dirt. I really wanted to appreciate you coming on the show today, Nick. Thank you so much for all your insight. We're definitely going to have to have you on again soon. Where can people find you on social media? Yeah, no question about it. Thanks for having me, Spencer. You can find me at NTAM1215. It's N-T-A-M-M-1215. And uh, I certainly interact there with people as frequently as possible. And you can give me your opinion. You can say nice things. You can say mean things. I'm going to reply no matter what. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on, Nick. Thank you, Spencer. Take care. Thanks to all of our great fans for listening to this show and my special guest, Nick Tamaro. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's president is Pierre Thomas Fornital. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin, and our In The Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>